Good morning. Are you guys doing well this morning? All right, one of you. Cool, cool. Well, we are starting a new series today. Um, well, a new series-ish. If you've been around the fold for a couple of years, then this logo and this title probably sound familiar to you. Uh, this series is called Lowborn, with the subtitle, The King We Never Saw Coming. Um, and a couple of years ago, we did this series, and we walked through the life of Jesus, and we examined how Jesus is consistently subverting our expectations. We think we know what he's going to do and how he's going to behave, and we think we know what the king is like, but he's always challenging our expectations. This time, we're asking the same question, but instead of just looking at the life of Jesus, we're going all through Scripture. Um, we're going to look at some of the prophecies. We're going to look at the beginning of Scripture. We're going to look from Jesus' life and even after Jesus' life to see once again how Jesus is the king we needed, but never the king we would have asked for. Never the king we knew we needed. He came from a place we weren't looking and did something we weren't expecting, but it was exactly what we needed him to do. I'm really excited about this. Um, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis chapter 3. If you got your Bible, open up there. That is the first book. It's about the third page of the Bible. So it uh, should be easy to find. Genesis chapter 3. Now, before we jump in, I want to say this. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is extremely dense. The first few chapters of the Bible are extremely dense in terms of of, of ideas and themes that are introduced that go all throughout Scripture. So I'm just going to say this right now. I'm not going to be able to preach everything that is contained within Genesis 3 today. So some of you are going to hear this and you're going to be like, but what about that? We didn't have time. Um, there is a lot. In fact, honestly, if you for some reason said, CJ, you have to pick five chapters of the Bible and you can only preach those five chapters for the rest of your life, three of them would be Genesis 1 through 3. Because if we want to understand the story... The best place to do it is the very beginning, because here in these chapters are the themes and the ideas that run all throughout the overarching narrative of Scripture. This is one of the coolest places to look in the Bible, in my opinion, but we are not going to be able to cover everything that's in there today. In fact, during fold groups, we went through the whole chapter. We're not even going to read the whole chapter today, because we just can't teach everything that's in the chapter, all right? Give me some grace for that. Cool. Awesome. All right, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, 
She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We're going to stop there for today. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that speaks to us and has spoken to us, that is ancient and relevant and new all at the same time. And Jesus, we come to you again asking that the name of Jesus is the only name that matters to us today. I ask that anything that's just for me, that's my thoughts or opinions or perspectives would be revealed so it can be rejected, that only what is faithful to your word would be remembered. Let the name of Jesus be the name echoing in our hearts and minds this morning because that's why we're here. We love you. Amen. Have you ever uh, been in an argument or a debate with someone where you knew for sure that you were right? Yeah, yeah, everybody. I mean, you knew for sure. Like, you had, you had the data, you had done the research, you were there, you knew for sure. Like, how in the world could anybody disagree with me? The evidence is so clear And then you realize that the other person feels the exact same way about their side of things. Like they are just as convinced that they are right. Right? Have you ever been right about something? I mean, objectively right. Like you know you're right. You won the argument and then you still had to say you're sorry. (laughs) Yeah, because you can be right, but not be right. Yeah, you've been there? Another way we could phrase this is, uh, are you married? Have you, have you dated someone for more than like two months? Uh, have you had a friend for more than a year? Have you ever been a teenager? When I was a teenager, I knew I was right. I mean, I knew I was right about a lot of stuff. I was convinced. I had like read on Wikipedia all the information. I mean, I was wrong, but I was convinced that I was right. Have you ever, I don't know, have you ever like had a sibling or just been a human existing in the world? Have you ever read something on the internet? And then you had an argument with that person in your mind, and you super won that argument. Yeah. Being right is complicated, isn't it? Have you ever, have you ever said something that was completely true and completely factual, but after you said it, you read the room and realized this was not the right time to say it? <laughs> have you ever uh, told a joke to one group of friends that was perfectly appropriate and not offensive and really funny to everybody, but then you told it in a different place, and let's just say it was not received the same way? Have you ever done that, I don't know, like on a Sunday morning with a microphone in front of a bunch of people? Yeah, me either. (laughs) I know you guys are like, we've heard you do that, come on. Being right is complicated. Because being right is about more than just information. You can be right, but you can be right the wrong way. You can be right, but it can be the wrong time to say it. You can do the right thing at the wrong time, and it be wrong. You can do the right thing the right way at the right time, and it still hurts someone. And you still have to say you're sorry. The desire that we humans have to 
be right. It's something that we all, I think, share. We, we love to be right. We love to be justified. We love to be vindicated. But this desire to be right is ultimately the desire for independence. I want to propose something to you this morning. It is nearly impossible to be in a healthy relationship with someone and still care a lot about being right. Because when we move towards proving ourselves right, vindicating ourselves, justifying ourselves, we almost always move away from the relationship. Because being right in a relationship depends on that person. It depends on that person's experience. It can depend on the day that person had. It can depend on your knowledge of that person. It can depend on the way that person perceives the thing that we're talking about. Now, we all know that there is an objective truth, that there's objective right and wrong, but human beings are subjective. So our experience and our perspective of those things complicates relationships, doesn't it? So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are tempted to eat, and they just decide to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, there are a couple things that we need to deal with in this story, because one of the ways that this story often gets preached is as if Eve is, like, sneaking around, hanging out with snakes, not telling Adam what's going on, and she's, like, over here at the tree that they both know they're not supposed to be around, but she's like, I'm going to hang out over here anyway. And then, I don't know, depending on how we preach it, Eve's either, either, like, super gullible or, like, kind of conniving, and she eats the fruit, and then she goes back over to Adam, and is like, don't ask me where this fruit's from, just eat it. (laughs) And then he eats it, right? And like Adam gets tricked by Eve who was doing it. That's not how the story goes for the record. The story is very clear. It says that Eve ate the fruit and gave some to her husband who was with her. So Adam is standing right here. Adam is like vying for plausible deniability the whole time. Like Eve's talking to a snake and he's not saying anything about it. He's just rolling with it. Right, he's like, I want to have a good time, but I want to be able to say it wasn't my idea if we get in trouble. Like, that's what Adam is doing here. So we need to understand that. They are both here being deceived by the serpent together. And there's something that's really interesting. The first mistake, the first problem that we see in the story isn't actually where Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It's a miscommunication. Back in Genesis chapter 2, before Adam and Eve are, before the human is divided into Adam and Eve, something is taken out of Adam, and we get Adam and Eve, that the instruction is given to Adam to not eat the fruit of the tree. And it's very explicit. God tells Adam, do not eat the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will certainly die. There are consequences from eating this tree, and if you do, I want to warn you, those consequences are coming. But somewhere along the way, there's a miscommunication. Some people argue that Adam didn't do a very good job telling Eve, that he didn't communicate very well. We don't really know. Somewhere, though, there was a breakdown of communication, and something was added to what God said. That's important. Something was added to what God said. God didn't say, don't touch it. God said, don't eat from it. But in some way, Adam and Eve took a measure of control 
and before they even ate from the fruit of the tree, decided to do a little defining of right and wrong for themselves and said, don't even touch it. For all we know, they could have like put a swing in it, climbed in it, decorated their house with the leaves. But no, they say to the snake, don't even touch it. That's where the first mistake comes. So then the serpent sells them this lie. He introduces the idea of coveting. You can be something different than God created you to be. You could be something better. You're missing out on something. You could be like God. It's the worst deal that's ever been offered because they didn't realize they didn't need it. They were already made in his image. But he sells them this lie. Eat from the tree. You won't surely die. No, you will be like God. So Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the knowledge of right and wrong. We might say they eat from the tree of independence, of self-justification. Now, scholars kind of disagree. They're divided on what the implications are of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Some scholars would say this is obviously about moral knowledge. The, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about explicitly knowing what is right and what is wrong. Some scholars would connect this idea to another phrase or a a different version of this phrase that's used later on in scripture when you will read things like, he was of age, able to know good and evil. And they would say that, that this is about some sort of age of accountability or it's about maturity or it's about independence. It's about not having to ask anybody else what's right or what's wrong, because you're old enough to know. It's, it's about some sort of independence. Some, some scholars would say that this is actually related to a Hebrew idiom in which they would use the extremes of a phrase to mean everything that's in the middle. So they might say, gather all the people, young and old. And by that phrase, they wouldn't mean gather just the young and just the old people. They would mean gather everybody, and it was a common phrase. So some scholars would say that this is the tree of knowledge, of of all knowledge. It's the tree of seeking knowledge and gaining wisdom and bettering yourself in some way. We don't really know exactly what this tree represented, but what we do know, what all of the, the explanations have in common, is it's the tree of not having to ask anybody else. It's the tree of gaining some sort of independence, gaining some sort of separation. It's the tree of not having to ask you if I'm right or wrong. It's the tree of knowing I'm right. I don't need you to tell me. Because a step towards self-justification, self-vindication is almost always a step away from relationship. Did you know that there is a conflict in connection? Anytime you deeply connect with another person, there's a conflict involved. Because it means opening yourself up to that person's opinions, that person's perspective. It means being vulnerable and allowing that person's experience of life to influence yours. It always leads to conflict. Because you can't be right all the time while you're around another person. There's inevitably conflict. So Adam and Eve eat from the tree. And like I said, there's a lot in Genesis 3. There's a lot more to this tree than just that. There's a lot more to this story than just this. This is one of the themes that we see, uh, we see represented in Genesis chapter 3. There's a conflict 
in connection. And Adam and Eve eat the tree. And it's interesting because they get exactly what they were asking for. They immediately know something's wrong. They were seeking the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as soon as they eat from it, they know something's wrong. Genesis chapter 2 ends by telling us that Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were naked and unashamed. But as soon as they eat from the tree, they know that something's wrong in their relationship. They know they've taken some step away from one another and from God because they look at one another, and instead of seeing their similarity, they see their difference, and they start to cover up. You're not like me. And they hide. And then they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of a day, another theme that's relevant in Scripture, but we don't have time to jump into today. They hear God walking, and immediately they hide because they know something is wrong. And since then, we have been hiding out of a desire for self-justification. Because there's a conflict in connection. So it's easier to hide. I think we all know that. We all know that it's easier to hide. You know, it's interesting. We live in a culture right now where we highly desire authenticity. We highly desire honesty. But we really like authenticity from other people and from leaders and from exposés and documentaries because we get to taste a little bit of authenticity. We have that desire to be known and loved. We get to taste it, but we don't have to experience it ourselves. We love to look at authenticity, but not to be authentic. Because that desire for authenticity oftentimes helps us hide. We can want it, but not have to live in it. We can look at it, but not have to experience it. You can be authentic, so I don't have to. We can all talk about your honesty. You know, this is one of the most important things that we as human beings can talk about. Because since almost the beginning, we have been hiding. And sin always leads to hiding. And sin always leads to isolation. Because intimacy, connection creates conflict. Connection means I have to care what you think. Connection means I have to listen to your voice. Connection means I have to open myself up to being wrong. Connection means vulnerability. Connection means risk. So we hide, just like Adam and Eve did. We hide over and over and over again. We cover up. Sometimes we turn to legalism and works-based righteousness. We try to prove how good and how godly we are so that we can keep everyone at arm's length. Because if I can earn God's love from him, then I don't have to need it, then I wasn't wrong. Sometimes we, we, we put on, we project an image. We are, we are careful and controlled with the way that we reveal ourselves to other people. We show a, we show a put-together version of ourselves. We, we carefully craft the way we dress and the way we act so that we show confidence. And, and we show control so that no one ever asks what's really going on behind the mask. We hide behind a job. We hide behind a salary. We hide behind a new car. We hide behind a funny personality. Because if we can keep people laughing, then maybe they won't ask. We hide. We all hide. It's funny that we all know we're all hiding, but we all choose to not believe it. We still compare ourselves to one another. 
even though we can see that glint of truth in everyone else's eye that tells us this isn't real, that person's hiding. We still compare ourselves to them because we're hiding. Because we all know that once you, when you hide once, the longer you hide, the harder it is, to be honest, the more lies we tell ourselves for anyone else. And usually these aren't obvious lies, just for the record. Usually these aren't like blatant lies. They're just, they're just covering up the truth. They're just controlling the narrative. They're just changing the story just enough. You know, when I was young and in high school and figuring out how to hide stuff really well, I got really, really good at telling a story so that you wouldn't ask a question. Telling a story in such a way that you would think that I told you the whole truth. We control the story. We control the image. We hide. Some of us, we just steer into it. Our mistakes are so blatant and so obvious. We are so convinced that we will never be right and never be justified that we just steer into it and we make it a joke. We, we laugh and we joke about our addictions. We laugh and we joke and we brag about our drinking. We laugh and we joke and we brag about our endless dating around or sleeping around. Or we, we laugh and joke and we make, it, we make it part of our personality that we're really brusque and kind of mean. We just steer into it, which is a way of hiding because if I can convince you that I am happy, with this trait, then I don't have to admit that I'm ashamed of it. But it's all hiding. It's all hiding because we all hide. There's a conflict in connection, and the only way to avoid that conflict is to cover up. But that's why Jesus is the king we never saw coming. Because why would a king come who isn't trying to prove himself right? Why would a king come who isn't trying to vindicate himself? Why would a king come who isn't trying to tell us that we're wrong? Why would a king come who isn't trying to win the argument? You know, you know for thousands of years, the Old Testament, they have prophecy about Jesus, the suffering servant, about the Messiah who would take the, take the weight of the government upon his shoulders, who would be bruised and chastised, and still he shows up and, and we don't recognize him. Even though there's all of this prophecy, we don't recognize who he actually is because why would a king come to suffer? Why wouldn't a king come to vindicate himself? Why wouldn't a king come to prove himself right? Why would a king come to be one of us instead of come to prove that he's better than us? Because that's what we do. That's what every leader that we see does. That's why, that's why we're not surprised every time another leader falls or there's another expose or there's more dirt on some celebrity because we expect leaders to be hiding something, covering something up, controlling the narrative, defending themselves. Why would a leader come with nothing to hide? Why would a leader come not trying to prove himself? You know, we, we now live with the benefit of 2,000 years of church history and all of scripture, and still, oftentimes when Jesus shows up in his gentle, loving mercy, we don't recognize him. Because we expect him to come with his finger pointed, telling us what's wrong. But he's not here to tell us something we didn't already know. We already ate the fruit. We already know what's wrong. I mean, some of us hide it well. Some of us do a good job of pretending like we are very confident that we are righteous and that we don't need saving. But usually when our head hits the pillow and there's no one else around, we know the things that haunt us because we already ate the fruit. Jesus didn't need to come with his finger pointed. He didn't need to come convincing us that we were wrong. He needed to come convincing us that we don't have anything to hide. 
So he became one of us. Born of a virgin to a working class family with calluses on his hands, knowing what it's like to have friends betray him and turn their back on him, experiencing the pain and suffering and full weight of the human experience upon himself and all of our sin and all of our hiding. There is a conflict and connection and it's most clearly seen on the cross. When Jesus takes the full conflict upon himself, proving that we don't have anything to hide. And we never did. This is why he's the king we didn't see coming. This is why he's the king that we still don't see coming. Because he comes close in the midst of our hiding. It tells us it's okay to confess because he already knows. It tells us that it didn't surprise him and it doesn't catch him off guard and we can't offend him away because he saw it all happen and he walked in the garden anyway. In the garden of Eden and in the garden of Gethsemane, he came close. There's a, a pretty simple application. And this is one of the most important truths that we can embrace as followers of Jesus. And the thing is, most of us know that Jesus loves us as an intellectual idea. We just do not live in intimacy with Jesus. We still live in hiding. We don't embody that truth. We just know that truth. There's a simple application, and simple does not mean easy, and that's really important to understand. Simple and easy are not the same thing. It's a simple application, but it is a horribly difficult application. It's called confession. For as long as there have been Christians, there have been Christians who practice confession. It has been part of the Christian life. Confession traditionally means just telling the truth. Confession is telling the whole truth. You confess faith. You confess your belief. You confess your sins. Confession is telling the full story of who we are and who God is. And confession is the antidote to hiding. Confession is the way we respond to the conflict and connection. Confession is the way we have healthy relationships, healthy marriages, healthy friendships. And confession is the way that we receive the full love that God offers to us without holding anything back by hiding. Confession is telling the whole truth, telling God our sins, our shortcomings, our doubts, our despair, the things that we can't believe anymore, telling him because he already knows, but also telling the full truth. You know, sometimes we think that confession is just telling part of the truth. It's only telling the bad, but confession is telling the truth, the whole truth. So when I confess my sins, I also confess forgiveness. When I confess doubt, I also confess faithfulness. I confess the whole truth. I confess that I have fallen short, but God has come near. I confess that my sins deserve death, but Christ died instead. I confess the whole truth. You know, as I was working on this sermon, I'm sorry, I woke up this morning sounding like a frog and it hasn't gotten any better. <clears throat> um, as I was working on this sermon, I remembered a picture from like two years ago, maybe more than that on my Instagram. Wow, more than that. It's when Josiah was about a year and a half old, so it was, he's seven, so it was a long time ago. Um, he was hiding. Can you tell? We were playing hide and seek. He, had, he did not think I could see him. <laughs> he was completely convinced that he was invisible, even though I'd stopped there long enough to take a picture of him. <laughs> he thought I was invisible. Confession is coming out from behind the curtain. 
Because we're not hiding anything from God. That's, that's the irony of all of it. You know, God asks, who told you that you were naked? Knowing full well. He walks into the garden with them, even though he's known right from wrong from the beginning. He knew something was wrong, but he walked in the garden anyway. They weren't hiding anything from him. In fact, later on, God made them clothes to cover up. <laughs> he was gentle with them in their hiding. He's gentle with us. Come out from behind the curtain. There is nothing that you can admit to God that's going to shock him or surprise him. Hiding only hurts us. It only hurts our, us. It won't offend God. Whatever you can tell him won't offend him. It won't catch him off guard. It will only be telling him the truth that he already knows. The antidote to shame is confession. The experience of forgiveness is confession. The path to connection is confession. So as we respond, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and we're going to leave just, just a couple of minutes for us to engage in a practice of confessing to the Lord. And I want to encourage you. One of the serpent's consistent temptations now is to convince us to only confess the bad. To multiply our shame by only telling us the bad. So, to make this clear, Satan wants you to spend the next two minutes saying, I am lustful, I am a failure, I am unlovable, I, I fall short, I am angry, I am bitter. Satan is fine with you saying that. But the way we defeat the lies of the enemy is we say, I am lustful, but I am covered in the purity of Christ through the cross. We say, I am bitter, but I am covered in the love and forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. It has been forgiven. We say, I fall short, but he is faithful. We tell the whole truth and we defeat the lies of the enemy. So tell the whole truth. Name your sins to the Lord, but name his character and his faithfulness to yourself. And the next step, and this is where it gets really hard, is to bring that to the light to another person. Some of us go our whole lives convinced that that thing, if we were to say it out loud, we would never be forgiven. So that thing controls our whole life. And I've, I've been a pastor for a while. I have sat in a lot of conversations where someone has had a that thing that was going to ruin their life, and I have never seen it ruin someone's life. Just for the record, I have never seen confession ruin someone's life. Most of the time, whatever that thing is that that person thinks is unforgivable, they say it out loud, and I'm like, oh, that's all? The lie multiplies in our minds to keep us hidden. When we bring it to the light, we see it for what it really is. Big or small, it's covered in the forgiveness of Jesus, and there is a path towards healing and wholeness that we cannot find in hiddenness. So if you want to confess to someone, I will be up here. We have our ministry team who's available. Steven's over here. Jack and Caroline will be up here singing. So don't go up there if you don't want to talk into a mic. But <clears throat> Confess to your fold group leader. Confess to a friend. Confess to a family member. If you have a secret that's been haunting you, don't give it any more time to burrow any deeper into your life. Bring it into the light. 
so that you can realize what's already been true. That the cross already happened. Forgiveness has already been offered. And you can receive it. You can accept it. Let's pray. And then we'll engage in a time of confession. God, we love you. We thank you that we are unable to keep anything hidden from you. We thank you. Honestly, we thank you that our attempts at hiding are just like a kid hiding behind a curtain so that we can't bring anything to you that you didn't already know. We can't bring anything to you that will offend you because you already knew it. We thank you that our sins cannot crucify you again. But you died once and for all. And as Paul said, if you died once and for all and all died, if we would accept and believe in your sacrifice. God, give us the confidence to tell the whole truth. Give us the courage to tell the whole truth. To uproot the lies that claim our lives. Let us tell the whole truth about ourselves so that we can believe the whole truth of who you are. Let us be a people who are unashamed, not because we have nothing to be ashamed of, but because we don't have anything to hide. And we refuse to hide. We love you, Jesus. Let us experience your mercy and your love this morning. Amen. Thank you.